appreciate everyone uh, being here this evening. Hope everybody's had a good day today, had a good day this morning uh, of worship, and uh, hope that uh, we'll be uh, energized by the things we do uh, here today and ready to meet the com coming week. We're talking about different characters of the cross. We're going to continue to do that. These are not leading characters in the New Testament story. We don't really read about them much, most of them, except in connection with the story of the crucifixion. But there are valuable lessons to be learned from them. Sometimes uh, we see ourselves in these people and can see some weaknesses, some areas that we need to develop and work on. And so that's, that's the hope anyway, that we'll learn, learn from these things. Uh, uh, going to mention a few things that uh, we heard in our home growing up when I was a child growing up. My dad had some things that he would say from time to time, some little sayings that he would make. I, I imagine all dads are like that. But uh, they, we heard them many times growing up, and uh, they come to mind sometimes even uh, to me today. For example, he might be on a certain task and trying to accomplish a a certain thing, and somebody might say, do it this way, another person might say, do it this way, and he would say, you know, I might not get it right, but it won't be because I don't have lots of help. You know, so uh, my dad had a, had a good sense of humor, um, and uh, some people who didn't know him that well didn't pick up on that, but uh, he did have a good sense of humor. Some of these are, are kind of funny to me. This is not funny. Uh, we would ask him from time to time about his life before he became very serious about his faith and being a Christian, living a godly and a holy life. And, and he would say, you know, I, I've made lots of mistakes. He may not answer us specifically, but he would say, you know, I, I've made lots of mistakes, but when I learned better, I did better. Well, that's, that's good advice, isn't it? We all make lots of mistakes in our life, but, but when you learn better... You should do better. If we ever got into a little discussion with them about being old enough to make our own decisions, I think I'm old enough to make my own decisions, he'll say, he'd say, you know, you'll be old enough to make your own decisions when you're old enough to make the right decisions. And I thought, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's pretty good advice as well. One of them was stated so often it became known as Hutto's Law. Hutto's Law is you can't leave at the time you're supposed to arrive and get there on time. And so that's, that was invoked from time to time, Hutto's Law. Well, <clears throat> I mentioned those to mention this one. He might hold an opinion about something not really very important, and, uh, but he might have an opinion about it, and, and you might get into a conversation with them about it, and you might say, you know, I, I know you think that, but, but you haven't considered this. And you, you show him why his opinion is not correct. Or, you know, you haven't, you haven't considered this, or you haven't considered this. And eventually he would say in jest, you know, my mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. And uh, we're going to talk about a man tonight in our study whose mind was made up and he didn't want to be confused with the facts. And so let's turn to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to talk about Caiaphas. And you'll see as the story unfolds that that was true of him. His mind was made up about Jesus. It didn't matter what the facts were. It didn't matter what the argument was. It didn't matter what consideration he hadn't thought about. 
He didn't want to be confused with the facts because his mind was already made up. Although he's a minor figure in the New Testament and in the life of Jesus, he's only mentioned nine times in the New Testament. He is an important person in the events leading up to the crucifixion. And it would not have occurred. The crucifixion would not have taken place if it was not for his contribution to it, for his approval and his involvement in the process. And so there would be no crucifixion of Jesus if it were not for the contribution of Caiaphas. And so we will look at what that contribution was, and we will look at the character of Caiaphas and, and uh, the reason why he did the things that he did. We know almost nothing about Caiaphas from sources outside the Bible. Josephus mentions him a couple of times, almost in passing. And so just about all the information we have about this man comes from the pages of the New Testament. We learn that he was high priest in Israel from about A.D. 18 to 36, 37 A.D. And so about 8 to 10 years he was the high priest. He was the son-in-law of Annas. Annas had been high priest before him. Five of the sons of Annas served as high priest. And here's Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, the high priest. And we learn that information from John chapter 18 and verse 13. These people were Sadducees. And so Sadducees, or the high priests, were taken from Sadducees, and most of the Sanhedrin, most of the council were Sadducees. Now, there were others, there were Pharisees on the council, but most of them were Sadducees. They were very wealthy individual and very, uh, very, very influential people as well. It appears from what we learn in the New Testament that Annas, even though he didn't serve officially as high priest when Caiaphas did, perhaps they served together for a while, but even after Annas was not high priest any longer, he still wielded a great deal of, of influence. The Sadducees appear in the life of Jesus only occasionally, but they play a more prominent role in the trials of Christ and leading up to the crucifixion. Since Jesus at that point was dealing with the high priests and the council, the Sadducees, who occupied those positions more than others, then they, they come into contact with Jesus, and they're relevant in the story of Jesus as it leads up to the crucifixion. Now, the office of high priest was a very important one in Israel, a second only to the king. And so they have a king during this time, and so the high priest was a very important office in Israel, very powerful, very prestigious. The power to appoint the high priest was with the Romans. And so the Romans appointed the high priest in Israel during this period of time, and it was often appointed to those who would submit a, you know, a pretty hefty bribe. And so the office was put up for sale, so to speak, and uh, it went to the highest bidder or whoever was willing to bribe his way uh, on, onto the, or into the position. And so the high priests were always wealthy and dishonest during this time and in sympathy with Rome and very much concerned about the relationship between Israel and, and Rome. You know, if the Romans can appoint you to be high priest, they can unappoint you from being high priest as well. And so there's, there's that interest in conciliating, conciliating Rome. We can add to wealthy and powerful and dishonest 
uh, we can add ruthless to the description when it comes to Caiaphas' case. After the story of the New Testament, Caiaphas fades from history. Don't read anything about him, either in the Bible or outside the Bible. After uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, there's one reference to him in Acts chapter 4 and verse 6. And so that leads us to the conclusion that his one contribution to history was condemning Jesus to death. Now, how would you like that on your record? <laughs> your, your one contribution to history, you condemn Jesus, the innocent Son of God, to death. Now, that, that's what you're known for. I don't think any of us would want that. And so let's go to John chapter 11. We're going to start in John chapter 11 before we, I think I said... Matthew 26 a moment ago, but John, go to John chapter 11. This is, the, at least in chronological order, the first time we come across Caiaphas in the New Testament. And this, this, this particular passage occurs just after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and verse 45 says, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus had done. And so Lazarus is raised, and many people, they're believing on Jesus because of what He has done. But, but others, they're, they're kind of tattletaling, aren't they? They go to the Pharisees and tell what Jesus had done. And then verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council, and were saying, What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now the Jews had some autonomy, some, uh, they were able to govern themselves to some degree. Now, of course, the Romans were, were ultimately in charge, but, but they would give the Jews some latitude and let them uh, govern themselves and make their own decisions. But if this man, Jesus, continues to get a bigger and bigger following, there's the real potential that he's going to cause problems for us with Rome. And we cannot have that. We can't have the Romans coming in and taking away our nation, taking away our right to govern ourselves and to make our own decision, to take away our place, to take away our position. This man is a real problem for us. And we've got to do something about it. And no doubt they're talking about what they might do and discussing this option or that option. And then verse 49 says, One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You don't know what you're talking about. Nor do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, you, you people don't know what you're talking about. If you have the idea that somehow we can let this man continue and save our position and save our place, you're, you're, you're sadly mistaken. He must be eliminated. That's the only solution to the problem. If you think we can let him live and continue, now that you got it all wrong, you don't know what you're talking about. He's got to be gotten rid of. He's got to be eliminated. And so, Dealing with Jesus in any way that would allow him to continue is doomed to fail. If, if it's necessary that we kill him, oh, that might be unfortunate, I suppose, that he'd have to die. But I'll tell you what, it's better that one man die than that the whole nation perish. And so he's made a calculation, hasn't he? He's, he's made a determination. 
It's better that we eliminate Jesus and do away with Him and save our nation than allow Him to continue and lose our nation. Now, if you continue to read on in John 11, verse 51, you'll see that John says, He did not say this of His own initiative, but being a high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He didn't realize the full import of, of even what He said. And so we learn from this particular passage that Caiaphas is a man for whom the end justifies the means. And so in his situation, this particular case, the end that we want, the result that we want is to hang on to our place and to our nation. And if that means that we have to kill this man, well, so be it. Maybe that's unfortunate. But the end, keeping the nation, justifies the means. Whatever you have to do, to reach this desired end, well, that's just what you have to do. That's just what has to be done. And so for Caiaphas, the end justifies the means. We'll come back to that idea in a little while. And so now let's go to Matthew chapter 26. And so we can see a little bit about the character of Caiaphas, what kind of person he was. We know that uh, probably a wealthy man, dishonest, unscrupulous, ruthless. We can see all of that so far. Matthew chapter 26. Now Jesus is seized in the garden of Gethsemane, and verse 57 says, Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. Now John tells us that they made a stop at the house of Annas first, who was high priest before Caiaphas and was father-in-law to Caiaphas. But John does tell us a great deal about what happened there, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't say anything about it at all. And so they go to Caiaphas, and they have a meeting together. And so you see the scribes and the elders are gathered together. And so just get that picture in your mind. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. They've been plotting against Jesus how to do away with Him. Uh, they've come to the realization that we're going to have to just eliminate Him. And so they arrest Him in the middle of the night. And they take Him. This is before dawn. They take Him. Apparently this takes place at the home of Caiaphas. Mark's account tells us that these things take place, or that Peter, on this occasion, he goes to the courtyard of the high priest. And so this apparently takes place at the home of Caiaphas. Now, I find that interesting, don't you? That all these scribes and elders just happen to be at the home of Caiaphas here in the pre-dawn hours of the day. No. All this is planned beforehand. The, the plot is being is being carried out, what to do with Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put Him to death. And so note that. Kept trying to find false testimony against Him so that they can put Him to death. They already know the outcome before the trial takes place. They didn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on two came forward and said, This man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest, he's a little frustrated by this point. He stands up and says to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. I'm, I'm putting you under oath. You tell me. I'm, I'm instructing you. I'm commanding you. You tell me. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus now answers, You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, 
you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that's an affirmative answer. You tell us, are you the Son of God? Yes, <laughs> yes I am, is the, the gist of it. Now how do I know that's the gist of the answer? Well look at the response of Annas in verse 65. The high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. You heard it. You heard it yourself. He's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. There are lots of irregularities and maybe even illegalities in this particular proceeding. Now this is not a formal trial. This is an informal gathering of powerful and influential people who make the decision to get all their ducks in a row, so to speak, before the formal trial. I, had a, I knew a guy one time, he, he was a member of the city council, he told me, you know, when we have a vote coming up on the city council, we all go into a room and we talk about the issue and we all decide how we're going to vote and we, we kind of indicate that. And then we go out and we, we sit in the official capacity and, and we, ca we, we cast our vote. And so that's what they're doing here. They're, they're all getting together before the formal trial. And again, everything prearranged. They're find, trying to find these witnesses. And they're trying to find out what's going to happen, what's going to be said, who's going to vote which way, all of that. They're, they're making up their minds. They're settling the issue before the formal trial. And so it's not a formal trial at this point. It's just a, a preliminary meeting of the principal figures gathered to predetermine what will be said and done at the legal procedure. That's not right. You know, it's not a fair hearing. Uh, the, the outcome has already been decided. It takes place at night, which is an irregularity to, to say the least, perhaps even a, an illegality. A, a situation like this and a case like this is, should, should be out in the open and people should be able to hear it and examine the evidence. The jury tries to find false witnesses. <laughs> Not trying to find objective witnesses that will testify to the truth of who Jesus is and His character and what He's done. It says they're trying to find false witnesses. Look at verse 59. The council who's going to, and that's the jury so to speak, they're going to decide the issue, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. The witnesses are unreliable. Now, they don't agree among themselves. And so they're unreliable witnesses. And then finally, Caiaphas, he grows frustrated, and he becomes prosecutor, judge, and jury, all rolled into one person. He begins to ask Jesus questions. He decides the issue. He decides what will be said and what's in order, what's out of order. The accused is forced to testify against himself. Now, that's not done in our courts, but... Jesus was forced, was forced. I adjure you by the living God. You tell us this. And so he's forced to testify against himself. So there are lots of irregularities, illegalities, however you want to describe it. All of this indicates that this is a rigged procedure. It's a sham. It's not a dispassionate, objective examination of the evidence. It's just not that. Caiaphas is not interested in that kind of hearing, a fair hearing of the evidence. He's want, he wants Jesus eliminated. We, we saw that all the way back in John chapter 11. And he'll go to any lengths to achieve it. 
In other words, his mind is made up. Don't confuse him with the facts. <laughs> you know, his mind is made up. I don't want to hear facts. I don't want to hear objective evidence. I, I, I just want to hear enough so that I can condemn this man the way that I, I want to. Well, let's make a few observations about the character of Caiaphas. He's, he's closed-minded. No amount of evidence, no matter how much or how strong, will persuade him to change his mind about Jesus. Uh, is that why Jesus didn't answer? You know, Jesus remained silent. Well, well, what could he say that's going to change the mind of these people? Their minds are already made up, you know. And so, and so he's silent. For Caiaphas, as we said a couple of times, the end justifies the means. If the death of one innocent man meant that, meant that his position and that of the nation was secure, well, well so be it. That's not a trivial issue. You know, the retention of power in the nation and the place of the nation. Now, that's not a small issue. It's not, not a trivial matter. And he is willing to go to any length necessary to secure the outcome that he and others wanted, even if that meant doing something immoral. And we're going to get the outcome we want, even if we have to kill this man to do it. Caiaphas has no conscience, does he? He has no conscience. <laughs> you know, the others we've dealt with in our discussions, they, they at least have a con Judas had a conscience when he realized, oh no, I betrayed a, a righteous man. Well, he didn't deal with it the wrong way, but you can see it upset him. Pilate had a conscience. He wanted to release Jesus. He tried to release him a number of times. <laughs> and, and so he has a, some sensitivity to the, to the issue in the, you know, the physical well-being of Jesus. Peter obviously has a conscience. Seems that Caiaphas, he has no conscience at all. You know? If it means we've got to kill this guy, we've got to kill this guy. No, we're not going to lose any sleep over it. And these things are magnified because they're found in a man holding a religious office. Here's a man who's supposed to be a spiritually minded man. He's a religious leader in the nation. He's the He's the high priest, and yet he's closed-minded. He thinks the end justifies the means. He's ruthless. He's violent. He has no conscience. His judgment should have been impartial. I got to curious about that. I look at this passage in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is uh, written, you know, these are regulations concerning the, the priesthood. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15 it says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. You're to judge your neighbor fairly. And so here, here's what the law says. Not to, be, not to be partial. Judge your neighbor fairly. And Caiaphas, the high priest, is just the opposite of that. He's unfair. And so we can conclude that Caiaphas, he's, he's just evil. He's just an evil person. <laughs> In John chapter 19 and verse 11, Jesus is talking to Pilate and he makes the comment, the one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And a lot of people think that's Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one who made the ultimate decision to deliver Jesus over to be crucified. The one who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He should know better. He's the high priest in Israel and he's responsible for the death of Jesus is innocent man. So let's just make a few applications. Caiaphas is, 
It's just an interesting contrast, isn't it? You see these two men here at this stage of the trial of Jesus. Here's Caiaphas and here's Jesus. And these two men in the same room standing kind of face to face. And just what a contrast there is between these two. Caiaphas is aggressive and ruthless. He's dishonest. He'll do anything to achieve his purpose. And Jesus is just the opposite of that, isn't he? In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, he's described as holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And uh, it's interesting, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 identifies Jesus as our high priest. Makes an interesting contrast, doesn't it, between Caiaphas the high priest, ruthless, violent, no conscience, Jesus, holy, mild, innocent, undefiled. Caiaphas is closed-minded and misses the truth about Jesus because of his closed-mindedness. We can't afford to be closed-minded. We, we, we just can't afford to be closed-minded because we may miss the truth if we are. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable uh, of the... the the sower, the parable of the sower. Remember, the seed falls on different types of ground. Some of it falls on good ground. And Matthew 13, verse 22 says, The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is a man who hears the word, worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, and becomes unfruitful. And then the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is a man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And so we, that's what we need to be, that good soil. We hear the Word, we consider it, we receive the truth, no matter what the truth might be, we receive the truth and then it bears fruit in our lives. You know, the truth of the Gospel convicts some people, but it hardens others. Some people hear the Gospel and they're cut to the heart and they respond. Others hear the gospel that it affects them just the opposite way. What, what's the difference? Well, no doubt, at least for some, some have an open mind to the gospel and some have a closed mind to the gospel. And so they're open-minded people. They hear the gospel and they're convicted by it and they want to obey because it's true. The closed-minded, they hear the gospel and they have no interest in obeying. And in fact, they may very aggressively turn against it. Now we, we want to be open-minded. So regardless of what the truth is, we want to hear it and receive it and then have it bear fruit in our lives. In 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 10, you remember the Lord addresses Samuel and Samuel says, Speak, Lord, your servant heareth. So that's, we need that attitude, don't we? Speak, Lord, I'm listening. Say what, say what you would have me to know. I'm listening. I want to know what it is so I can do it. And then on the road to Damascus, you remember the words of Saul of Tarsus. What would you have me to do, Lord? Well, that's, that needs to be our attitude. What do you want me to do? Just, just tell me what you want me to do, and, I, and I'll do it. And so have that open-mindedness. You remember the Bereans, more noble than those in Thessalonica, because they received the word with readiness of mind. Their minds were prepared. They're ready to receive the Word. They're open to it. And so we can't afford to be closed-minded. If we're closed-minded, we may very well miss the truth when we're exposed to it. And that was, that was one of Caiaphas' problems. 
He was determined to accomplish His own will. Jesus was determined to accomplish the Father's will. Caiaphas was determined to accomplish his own will, even if that meant that others had to suffer. Jesus was intent on accomplishing the Father's will, even if that meant that he had to suffer. And so we need to be like Jesus in that, in that way. Jesus is silent during his time with Caiaphas for the most part, not out of weakness, but because he knew what the will of the Father was. John chapter 6, and there are several statements to this effect, to this effect in, these, in this section of John. But John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. I'm here, I'm, I'm ready to do the Father's will. And we remember the words of, the, of Jesus in the garden. He prayed that this cup might be removed from Him. Nevertheless, He says, not I will, but, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. In John the 12th chapter, and uh, verse 27, Jesus says, My soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And so all of that, all those passages simply impress upon us the fact that Jesus was intent on doing the Father's will. Whatever that will was, he was going to do the Father's will. Caiaphas was intent on doing his own will. And so the world is full of people who are intent on doing their own will, and, and we can be like that if we want to be. But in the end, those who do the Father's will will be vindicated. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Who's going to go to heaven? The ones who do the Father's will. And so. We can be intent on doing our own will, and we may even be successful in this life. But in the end, in eternity, it's those who do the Father's will who are going to be vindicated and rewarded. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that our own will is more noble or more important than it actually is. And maybe this is Caiaphas' flaw. You know, we've talked about the flaw in some of these people's character. Judas. Was, was, was greedy. Peter couldn't see his own weaknesses. You know, Pilate didn't have the strength to do what he knew was right. And maybe, maybe Caiaphas' problem is that he thinks his will is more important than it really is. You know, he, he thinks saving the nation from the Romans is, is more important than the life of this innocent man. And we can convince ourselves that what we want and our will and our purpose and our objective is really more noble and more important than it actually is. And so Caiaphas set out to persuade others that the most important thing to do is save the nation and save their position, even if it meant that Jesus had to die. And then maybe that's human nature, to think that our personal interest is more important than others. But in the New Testament we're taught to put the will of others first, to put others before ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us that. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. Putting the needs of others and the desires of others before ourselves. That's, that's what we're taught to do as Christians. In the book of 1 John, we find it expressed this way in verse 16. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and 
we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so that's, that's putting the concerns of the brethren, the needs of the brethren, ahead of our own concern, that our own perceived needs. We might even convince ourselves that doing wrong is justified if the greater good results. You may have heard that. You know, why did you do that? I did it for the greater good. You know? And so we can convince ourselves that, that lying is justified if the greater good is served, or that stealing is justified under certain circumstances. You know, Saul, King Saul had convinced himself that offering a sacrifice was, was the right thing to do, and of course it was not the right thing to do. And Samuel told him, you know, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. You, you obey, and you let the results be determined by God. You know, one, one problem with this approach, that lying is okay if the greater good is served, we just don't have the wherewithal to determine what the greater good is. What we think is the greater good may in the long run not, even, not be the greater good at all. You know, if, uh, if Cherry asked, if, if I asked Cherry, Cherry, how's, how's, this, how's this shirt and this tie look? And she, said, she says, uh, that, looks, that looks good. That looks good. It really doesn't. She's just trying to spare my feelings. And I go out there and I become the object of ridicule and people make fun of me because my tie and my shirt don't match. You know, she's trying to hurt, save my feelings. That's the greater good, is it? And, and really in the long run, I'm, I'm hurt by it. We just don't have the ability to determine what the greater good is. God, God, will, God will take care of the greater good. You just obey. Just tell the truth. You just be honest. You just do what the Lord wants you to do and let Him take care of the greater good. Jesus believed it was best to do the Father's will and entrust Himself to the one who judges righteously. That's the idea in 1, Timothy, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and... Uh, verse, uh, uh, verse, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I I'm just going to do the Father's will, and I'm going to trust, put my, my life in the hands of the Father's. I'm going to entrust myself to him. And then finally, sometimes the righteous are mistreated by the unrighteous. There are evil people in the world. They're just evil people in the world. You know? Caiaphas was an evil man, and Jesus was sort of a, uh, under his control for a period of time. And sometimes these evil people take advantage of good people. So what should our response be when that takes place? Well, look at what Romans chapter 12 says. We're going to look at Romans chapter 12, and we're going to pick up in verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If it be possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your revenge, beloved. Leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good. Jesus teaches us, to pray for our enemies, to turn the other cheek, to do good to those who would do evil to us, and entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. There's going to be a great reversal in the judgment day. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Matthew chapter 19, verse 30 tells us, the oppressed for his namesake 
will be vindicated and glorified. The oppressors of the righteous will be condemned. And so there's going to be a reversal. The oppressors of the righteous, well, they're going to suffer eternal oppression. Those who are oppressed for His namesake, they're going to be glorified. And so we always want to keep that in mind. That's the perseverance of the saints, so to speak. That's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us faithful. Knowing that one day God will put things right. And if I submit to Him and do His will, no matter how I'm treated by evil people, God is going to put it right, and He is going to reward the faithful. Well, Caiaphas is, uh, like we said before, I just think it's uh, how tragic it is for the one thing you're known for is, uh, is uh, giving permission for an innocent, the innocent Son of God to die. That, that's, that's terrible, you know. That's the kind of man he was, just an evil man with no conscience, intent on getting done what he wanted to have done, even if that meant doing some immoral, something immoral to have it done. The Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And so being under the control, the authority of a person like Caiaphas, might help us appreciate that statement a little bit more. Led as a lamb to the slaughter. Caiaphas had no qualms about having Jesus slaughtered. And Jesus was willing to do that. Go to the cross and atone for our sins in that way. So we want to appreciate that and we want to learn from the errors and the mistakes of this man Caiaphas. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the opportunities we've had today to meet together and to worship you and to look into your word and see what your word has to say and how we might benefit from it and how we might learn from it. We pray, Father, that we always have open minds, that we're receptive to the truth, that it will sink into our hearts and that it will bear fruit. Help us always, Father, to do your will, to put your will before our own, to, to trust you that when we submit to you and we obey you, even though that might bring hardship to us sometimes, that, that in the end you will raise us up and you will, you will vindicate us. Help us, Father, to be like Christ. Help us to be determined to do your will, to always put your will first and to be willing to serve others instead of, instead of self. Help us, Father, as we go through this week to remember these things about Christ as we go day to day following in his steps. And we pray, Father, that we will do that in such a way that others will see Christ in us and come to glorify you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're ready to obey the gospel, we can accommodate that tonight. If you're a believer, 